So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hi there, and I hope you're safe and well and you're inching your way through January. It's been an incredibly challenging month here in the UK with dark mornings, long working days in lockdown and homeschooling for the kids. Like you, I have my moments of frustration, but we need to keep our optimism at all times, even when our motivation ebbs and flows and we're getting through it together one step at a time. Welcome to episode 24 of Inside the Mind of Champions and I just wanted to thank all those people who wrote to me after the Eddie Jones episode. We haven't spoken for a while about coaching and management tactics so I've put together some fascinating insights from our interview library today where we'll be exploring some of those management dilemmas for leaders and coaches and as ever this podcast is packed with stellar names who've generously shared their advice to help you to become happier, healthier and more resilient. Here's a taste of what's to come. Because I want to know that I was able to do that. I was able to help them get there. And even if it's just because I was the eyes that could, they could give the information, my eyes can see it and I could give them feedback on it. You know, he walked into the room and I said, Sachin, I'm just having a one-on-one with everyone. I want to know um, what your expectations are of a coach. What would you want from me? And, And he said, Gary, I want you to be my friend. I just wanted a few words, keep it simple, not to mess up my mind with too much information. You know, the way we played, we had a very uh, flamboyant, almost carefree attitude, backed by a very strong work ethic. And I can see the fear, and I can see the frustration, and I can see the indecisiveness that he has. And then, it, you know, it, it's up to me to, to come up with something that, that you know, gives him a, a clear, clarity of mind. So some thought-provoking topics for us to ponder over today. And before we get cracking, I'm hoping you can solve a bit of a mystery for me. A couple of weekends ago, this podcast had 14,000 downloads just in India. And I'm not sure who to thank. Was it a mention on the cricket commentary or a radio show or a newspaper? I'd love to find out. So if you're listening in from India, that would be brilliant. If you could drop me a note on LinkedIn or via email to hello at sportingedge.com to let me know how you found out about the show and how it all happened on that particular day. That would solve a big puzzle for me. Also, massive thanks to those of you who've taken the time to leave a review. All podcasters absolutely rely on those to signpost the show. So thanks so much. Uh, Five star reviews from Joel saying incredible insights. Nathan saying this is his lockdown saviour while at uni. Revert 
ASAP and Coxie696, Pots of Gold. So thanks very much. And Andy Dawson, kind messages on LinkedIn. And also Nigel Atkins, the football manager. If you haven't been following Nigel on Twitter, then you must see his morning messages. They're truly inspirational. So go and search for him. And, you know, I'm really glad you've all been finding this podcast series helpful from wherever you're listening to in the world. I'm recording this at home and reflecting back on some amazing coaches that I've met and worked alongside. So it's been, uh, you know, fascinating for me to reconnect with some of those memories. Coaching is not an easy job, especially when you're working with some of the world's elite performers who are under intense pressure and scrutiny from the media. We tend to think that a cricketer or rugby player is static and that they're just fine-tuning their approach for each particular opposition at the weekend. But athletes are constantly trying to change and improve things and this can create real tension. The media are watching and they've got slow-motion replays from every particular angle. Just as you're trying out that new skill and there's that sort of you know, incredible transparency around every tactic and technique that you're trying to test and learn from. So it feels like a huge risk as an athlete to be moving away from this solid seven out of 10 performance in the risk that you might develop a new technique that could give you a nine out of 10 performance. But there's often a feeling of risk and a feeling of a potential setback as you try and bridge that journey from the old technique to the new. I remember as a spin bowler in my cricketing career that various coaches tried to get me to move the spot where my front foot landed and just to change the alignment of my hips and body where that landed by just two to three inches, which feels and sounds minuscule. But to me as an athlete that had got that muscle memory of landing in this exact same spot for years and years, it felt like that I was bowling with my legs splayed open like a spatchcock chicken. So that tiny variation felt like a massive uncomfortable shift, you know, and I might have one of the world's best batsmen at the other end. And as I'm trying to think about how I place my foot in a slightly different place and release the ball, you know, you've got all those different concerns as well. So it's really about trying to give the athlete the perfect balance of support and challenge so that they can get to that next point in their technical development or skill development When an athlete's under pressure, they'll always want to retreat back to that comfort zone and and perhaps settle for that less effective old style approach. So the real skill of a top class coach is to be patient and to be focused on those tiny steps of behavior change that can help the players get from their old technique to taking the risks and building the confidence that bridge across into this new one. So one of the first dilemmas that a coach has to face is that challenge or that um, personal drive that they might have had as a competitive athlete themselves, you know, where we want to get results, we want to see things straight away, but actually we've got to work through other people and all of that energy and frustration has got to be translated into the joy of seeing people make these little micro steps on the journey to becoming a better performer. So I'm conscious that we're going to have people listening in that are working with junior performers and some people are going to be working with the elite end. But this ability to get satisfaction and and get enjoyment out of seeing people develop is something that spans across all the age groups and all the performance levels. Making this shift across into the considering the athlete's perspective isn't as easy as it seems. I had some brilliant former players as coaches in my career 
who weren't great coaches, they were brilliant demonstrators. They could show me exactly how to do something, but they couldn't break down that information in a practical way so that I could develop those skills for myself. And that just leaves you feeling more frustrated now because you've got somebody who's past their prime, a retired legend that can still do it better than you as an athlete that's currently in the driving seat. So to me, a great coach has got that ability to deconstruct a complex skill into its first principles and then help you to reassemble it in a way that feels personal to you. It's almost imagining this Lego spaceship on one side of the table that the coach has got and then breaking it down into its component building blocks on the table and then working with the athlete to rebuild that spaceship. It's going to look a different colour and potentially be a different shape. But the level of emotional engagement and ownership that that athlete has got of that, you know, spaceship that they've developed is completely different to just trying to copy the example that the coach demonstrated or showed them in the first place. So that ability to allow people to see the building blocks, those first principles, understand those and rationalize them in their own mind and build them back up is a really, really important step in the coaching journey. Everybody's going to learn at different speeds. And when we've been competent as a performer before, and maybe we're working with children or people who can't quite get this technique, we've got to try and, uh, you know, take away that frustration and focus more on creating an environment that helps this person to move through these coaching experiences. Our first insight comes from the world of the performing arts and from Risa Steinberg, who's a former professional dancer and has held several senior positions in the world-renowned Juilliard School of Dance in New York. You'll hear Risa's passion for coaching as she pauses to reflect on the coaches that have impacted her personal journey and the motivation that sits at the heart of her own stellar coaching career. You know, the thing that comes to my mind is immediately I picture all of the great coaches that I've had. And I guess the thing they all had in common was this extraordinary respect for detail and clarity. So they were, they were practical in their information and yet at the same time they were inspiring by their passion for it. Maybe it's, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't think coaches and teachers are selfless. I, I, or at least I'm not. So I think a coach and a teacher has to have sudden huge investment in wanting to see that student or dancer or person just get better. You have to, you have to really want that. And I'm not selfless. I want it for them, but I also want it because I want to know that I was able to do that. I was able to help them get there. And even if it's just because I was the eyes that could, they could give the information, my eyes can see it, and I could give them feedback on it. You know, just that 360 degree relationship it's thrilling. I mean, there's something so physically satisfying for me to be in front of a room of dancers and see them get something. Yeah, it's just, there's just you know, it's, it's, ex it's simply exhilarating.
I love that insight because Reza shares that balance between the drive for personal excellence and that hunger to be outstanding that she's had all of her own dancing career, but how she's transferred that into a curiosity and creativity to help her students to achieve what they're capable of. If she can find the key to unlock their passion and adapt her feedback and delivery, then she'll get to see the sparkle in their eye of her students as they master that complex step. As we start to move through the coaching qualifications in all of our careers, we get notebooks and laptops full of theory. But to me, more than 60% of the coach's impact comes from their ability to connect at a human level. No one cares how many diplomas in biomechanics or executive coaching you've got until the coachee feels like you care about them as a person and understand how they can move from their current position to where they want to get to. This next insight from Gary Kirsten, India's former World Cup winning cricket coach, describes that perfectly. He explains the first steps in his relationship with one of the biggest uh, icons in the game, Sachin Tendulkar, and that laid the foundation for a very special era for both Sachin himself and also for the team. It was an interesting time starting with the Indian team um, in, in, in many ways. Uh, you know, I went there with a blank sheet of paper, I had very limited uh, coaching experience. Suddenly I was, I was the coach of a Sachin Tendulkar, a Raul Dravid, a Vivius Laxman, a MS Tony, all had huge experience and all huge individual sporting brands <clears throat> in their own right. And, you know, what was I going to say to these guys? Certainly, I don't think I had any new information technically that I could offer them. Um, and I remember having a one-on-one as a startup with each one of them. And the question I asked them was, what are your expectations of me as a coach? And I got a variety of different answers, as you could imagine. But I'll never forget the answer I got from Sachin Tendulkar. The whole meeting lasted about 30 seconds. And, you know, he walked into the room and I said, Sachin, I'm just having a one-on-one with everyone. I want to know um, what your expectations are of a coach. What would you want from me? And he said, Gary, I want you to be my friend. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say. And I didn't understand what it meant initially. Um, And then I spent three years with the team. And in those three years, he scored more international hundreds. In fact, it was 18 than any other three-year period. Um, He made a massive contribution to the team. This was at a point where he wanted to retire. And he really enjoyed that time of his cricket. And it made me realize on reflection from those three years what he was actually saying. That what is the definition of a friend? And it made me realize that uh, a friend needs to challenge you. A friend needs to put you in pressure situations and help you through those processes. A friend needs to be there for you when things aren't going well. A friend needs to treat you as a human being, not a performance tool. And uh, um, he, he, I think he saw in me in three years that I was authentically there for him, that my intent was legitimate. My intent was the best for him. And I've always viewed that in my coaching, that my number one priority, and I, and I, it's, I guess it's a little bit controversial in many ways because we live in this world of a, of a quick fix. We live in the world of a result. We measured by results. But my one, number one priority as a coach is to add value to people's lives. You know, and if the results don't quite stack up, but you've made a significant difference to people's lives, then I can walk away from that job if I get fired or move on happy that, uh, that I've had that experience. So we sometimes feel like we have to prove how much we know to people, but they're busy working out if we really care and if they can really trust us. 
I made this well-intentioned mistake as I joined a professional sports team for a coaching stint in Australia. In a desperate bid to be seen as credible, I piled into some psychological theory and mental skills within about, I think, seven minutes of meeting a top player. I asked him to try this new wacky technique and his polite repost of, I'm all right uh, at the minute, thanks, mate. May as well have said, piss off until you know me better. It was really interesting. I think Gary's point of building the relationship first is so key. Once that mutual trust and respect is in place, then our learning will always catch up and be accelerated later. Without it, it just feels like we're callously crowbarring standard advice into somebody who isn't interested at all. So we need to be patient. So in the dilemma as a new coach of when do I show them how much I know, my answer would be not as early as you think. Before our next insight, I just wanted to tell you how our members club is developing. My dream of creating a practical toolkit for you to use to strengthen your own mindset, resilience, well-being and team is definitely coming to life. And our members club launched just before Christmas and we've had an amazing response. So I'd love you to try it for yourself. When you become a Sporting Edge member, you'll get 24-7 access to over 600 bite-sized video insights from some of the world's best thinkers and performers. There's insights from elite coaches, neuroscientists, strategy professors for business and well-being experts as well. So it'll give you a really fast start in 2021 with these exclusive insights that you can't find anywhere else. I don't mind if you pause the podcast for a second and go to sportingedge.com, find the members page and register there. As a podcast listener, you can use the code INSPIRE21 without any spaces in the checkout and you'll get a free month's access to test drive it. There's no long-term commitment and you can cancel any time. So I'd just love you to go in and see some of the content that we've created to help you out. We've got an incredible community of people who are loving the membership and we've got some very high profile coaches and entrepreneurs and execs from around the world's biggest brands. So I also share weekly coaching videos that we can start to debate as a group and you'll have access to that whole library as well as some masterclass events we'll be having some world class coaches joining us for. And if you join soon, you'll be able to get a free invite to my masterclass coaching session on the 10th of Feb which is going to be all about helping you through the pandemic and the mindset we need to get through 2021. So go to sportingedge.com, find the members page and use INSPIRE21 as your discount code. And I'm sure you'll enjoy that free month's access to this incredible resource. I actually use the digital library myself when I'm trying to build out these podcasts and by typing in coaching and uh, empathy and some of these key words, then we get a brilliant selection of insights. And the next one that I wanted to share forces us away from that one size fits all approach. Again, this is another dilemma for us as a coach that we've got a standard template that we think should be used. But it comes from the Dutch athletics coach who helped Team GB to record their highest medal haul in the London Olympics. This is Charles Van Komene. I asked him what he thought the key to making a, this human connection was across the hundreds of athletes that he's coached. It's a different, different worlds when you coach 11, 12 year olds or 35 year old Olympic champions. That, that's hard. That's very hard to find a common factor. But if I have to think deeply, it is probably, probably empathy. 
um, because when you coach different individuals, they all have different needs and different preferences, different sensitivities. And as a coach, you have to find them. You have to identify them and then anticipate and work with those strengths and weaknesses. And if you have only one card to play, you have been, you, in, in the best case, you got only one success. You got one match. So you must have a lot of cards to play, uh, as many as you have individuals to deal with. You can only do that when you have empathy and understanding of communication. So this is another great reminder that we need to slow down, to listen and to learn about the specific sensitivities, the preferences, the aspirations of the person that we're trying to coach. That will tell us so much about how to build that solid interpersonal foundation before we get into the mechanics of our technical aspects of their business or sport. We often hear coaching described as guided discovery, and that's a two-way process. By asking great questions, we get to learn and discover more about the sensitivities and personality and learning styles of the individual we're coaching. But also through those great questions, they get to learn about themselves as well. And that greater self-awareness helps us to coach in a more impactful way. So we can actually be a good coach by being alongside them, but not actually coaching and piling into the mechanics of that coaching technique, because that can get us off to a poor start. So again, that empathy and patience to try and understand what life's like from their perspective is a really important foundational step. One practical activity that we can do is to consider a day in the life of the person that we're trying to coach. Maybe they're an executive who's under massive pressure to deliver results in the short term at the same time as they're going through a marriage breakdown and their confidence is at an all-time low. Or maybe they're a rising superstar in sport with loads of talent but they've surrounded themselves with people who are telling them that they're better than they really are. Or maybe they're a young recruit into a business that's operating virtually at the moment And they're second guessing what everyone thinks of their work as they haven't met in person and they don't really feel like they're welcome. Even with these three simple examples, we can connect with their struggle of low confidence, exuberance or a lack of belonging. When we attempt to immerse ourselves in their mindset and their personal life, we bring a completely different perspective to our coaching. After all, these are people, not just performers. In the dynamic, we often see that the coach is the expert that's going to tell the player or performer how to improve. But if we take this empathic view, we actually see the athlete or the coachee as the expert. It's their lived experience. They know how their body feels. They know their vulnerabilities and frustrations that they've got. They know what they're fearful of the media saying. They they know, you know the mistakes that they've had in the past using this particular business approach. So it's their expertise that we've got to tap into and almost reverse the model because there could be some unique natural strengths that they've got that we really need to unlock and bring those to the fore rather than just going with a standard approach. And this is beautifully summed up by the legendary Sri Lankan cricketer Kumar Sangakkara, who describes how Sri Lanka has learnt to cherish and amplify the natural talents of their cricketers rather than squash them into a predefined box.
the uniqueness of the Sri Lankan cricketer was, I think, only greatly appreciated after guys like Murali and Sanath came into being. Um, Sri Lanka is, is very textbook when it comes to cricket coaching. From a young age, um, if you go to a lot of the cricket nets that are being played, four people batting in four nets, they seem like carbon copies of each other. How the backlift, uh, the step out, the follow through, um, they look the same. Um, and um, it is not something that's, that's great for the game when that happens. But with the advent of Murali and Sanath and what they did you know, for Sri Lankan cricket, um, from 95 onwards, after that 96 World Cup win as well, um, we suddenly came to realize, of, realize one very important thing, that we as Sri Lankans, we played a slightly different brand of cricket, um, which was very uniquely identifiable. If you see a lot of our batsmen playing, it used to be like the old, old Calypso West Indian cricketers, you know, the way we played. We had a very uh, flamboyant, almost carefree attitude, backed by a very strong work ethic. Um, um, and I think when we really did identify that brand of our of us of who we were, um, I think people came to value individuality a lot more. The team, the dressing room culture has changed from from the pre nineteen ninety five era, especially after nineteen ninety nine. It changed dramatically through Sanat, Mav, and Hashantil Karatna, and then Mahal who took over before before I did. Um, and we, we started to look uh, and identify more and more kind of the unorthodox, different cricketer. Um, a lot of the, the coaches themselves um, were encouraged to ensure that they, they, they kept that uniqueness of each player intact, gave them a good basic grounding in technique. But if they had something that was different, not to squash it, but to encourage it, to see whether that was actually a positive um, uh, thing, a, a positive and a enhancing, uh, an enhancement to their game. Um, so much so that the, 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 the coaching program of Sri Lanka Cricket has, a, has an outreach program where anyone from anywhere in the island can write in um, to the board about various abilities. Um, so we've got letters to the board from, from Buddhist monks who said, you know, young Buddhist monk who said he was the fastest bowler in Sri Lanka, to a volleyball player who delivered the ball mid-air with a really big jump. And we would send the provincial coach down with a video camera to actually see whether these guys could walk the talk. And um, the video footage is then sent back to Colombo. And if there's anything of value there, then we, the players are invited to, to come and, and be tested out to see whether they could, they could be molded into, into um, someone useful uh, on the international uh, level for Sri Lanka. And Lassie Malinga is a classic example. Um, uh, talent searched, found, not having not played a great deal of under 19 or, or any kind of first class cricket. Played a lot of tennis ball cricket, especially on the beach. Unique action. And two years after being found out, he was um, you know, playing for Sri Lanka. Used to be this net bowler. Shamin Deranga was a net bowler. Um, different actions, different methods of delivery. Um, but we, we are tuned to, to try and search for that. Um, and I think that's one of the greatest things about our team, that difference, the valuing of individuality, from the way they look to understanding that certain characters will behave differently in a team environment, in a dressing room, away from the field, ensuring that we have good proper guidelines and structure for them to work within, but also give them the freedom that they need and they require to be able to perform at that level and to be unique. Um, and I think we've, we've struck a very good balance here 
We were very open-minded. Uh, we ensure discipline, but at the same time, we ensure that they have the freedom to express themselves and enjoy themselves playing this game. I had the privilege of working with the Sri Lankan cricket team as part of their coaching setup in the year leading up to the 2015 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. They had the likes of Kumar, Mahela Jayawardena, Nadilshan, and the freakish Lasith Malinga, known as Slinger Malinga. He was a great example of this natural talent being allowed to flourish. I asked him if a coach had ever tried to get him to lift his arm up higher like a classical bowler with his right arm brushing his right ear instead of sort of skimming round at hip height. And he said they had, but it had hurt his shoulder during the one or two training drills that he tried, so he never did it again. But he knew that people doubted whether he could be accurate enough to with this unique sort of approach that he'd got because biomechanically it shouldn't have been as accurate. So he was even more determined to develop some drills and skills that he could reinforce that muscle memory to make him even more accurate. So he developed this drill where he'd put an old pair of uh, Reebok trainers down on the batting crease where the batsman's feet would normally be so that he could go in and practice whacking these toe-crunching Yorkers on this old set of shoes. And it was his determination and repetition of this skill that gave him the ability to bowl Yorkers right on the batsman's toes when there were actually people standing in those shoes under the pressure of the match conditions. So his mechanics made it harder for him, but his focused practice gave him the confidence and his muscle memory was primed when he needed it most. I do wonder if Lasseth Malinga would have been allowed to bowl like that in England and some of the more traditional coaching environments. I think we may well have coached it out of him uh, and then we'd have missed one of the best natural talents in the world game. So the counter argument to this is, a, you know, the game of carbon copies that we're saying this from a biomechanical point of view or this from a technical and accuracy point of view is the way to go is that sometimes these unique strengths are the things that stand out. And maybe the reason that Lasseth Malinga was so hard to face and he was so destructive as a, bat, a bowler was because nobody else in the world was bowling like that and there was no pattern for the batsman to match it up against. So it always came as a bit of a surprise. So now we've got to understand the lived experience of our player or the colleague in the workplace that we're coaching. We know which elements that we're going to pull into a standard approach and where we're going to give them free reign to express their natural talent. We've got to think about their readiness to take on the new information that we've got. And this insight from former Wimbledon champion Boris Becker provides a great insight into elite coaching from his time working with the tennis star Novak Djokovic. And it's all about that detective work of finding the right time and place to give the coaching message. There are certain moments when, when your player is um, ready to listen. There are moments when your player is ready to work. And there are moments when you, you better shut up because the player just doesn't, is not ready for it at the moment. So it's a, it's a learning curve. It's a fine line of when to say what. I think timing is very important. Uh, uh, there are moments when I want to speak to him the night before. There are moments when I, I, I don't want to speak to him because he, he, he's on, on, a set, on a set piece already. So it's, it's you know, pretty much being on my toes the whole time and sensing when the right moment is to, 
to disrupt, to interfere, to communicate, to, to you know, um, do something that would help his tennis. You never know when they come. You know, you, I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready all the time uh, for the conversation. It comes in the practice, it comes after the practice, it comes just before. Whenever he feels um, he's ready to talk. Uh, 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 on the other side, um, there are moments when he doesn't feel he's ready and I still talk to him because I want to challenge him. So it's a, it's a constant battle of, of you know, who's ready for what uh, that makes it so exciting, that makes it so challenging, and that makes it very exhausting at night. Because you, you know, once, once, once I'm, I'm you know, in the locker room or in, in, on the courts, I'm constantly thinking about my player. I observe my player's eyes a lot. And, and there are moments when they're open and he's, he's reflective and he, he, he's, he's like a sponge, he's taking every word that I'm telling him. And there are moments when his eyes um, are covered and I can see the fear and I can see the frustration and I can see the indecisiveness that he has. And then it, you know, it, it's up to me to, to come up with something that, that you know, gives him a, a clear, clarity of mind. Uh, and and you know, the better you know a player, the more often you can apply that because you know you work from experience, you know what works and doesn't work and when it works. Um, and and you know, lately, lately um, he's been very clear. <laughs> Reading the eye contact and body language is a key part of being that performance detective as a coach and working out when the athlete or coachee is open to the new information and pulling on it and when they're starting to close up. One thing that I always try and do if I'm working with a, a small group or one-to-one -one in the summer, if I've got sunglasses on on the sports field, is to lift them up so that we can keep that eye contact. And that came from, I remember going on some uh, tours with, to sunnier climbs with, uh, as an England cricketer with the great coach, Duncan Fletcher. He was famous for wearing that wide-brimmed hat and those wraparound mirrored sunglasses. And Duncan was a pioneering innovator, really. The way he thought about the game was amazing. But he could tell you that you were picked or dropped without changing any facial expression. So sometimes it was quite hard to read what was going on. So I think making sure that, you know, we get into the shade to have that sensitive conversation or we, you know, take our sunglasses off is something that we don't often think about in coaching programs. But that eye contact is so important. Another dilemma for a coach is that the athlete's requirements might change on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, in a coaching week between a training day or a race or game day, as Amy Williams, the winter gold medal Olympian, now explains. Sometimes I'm happy just to be told what to do. Keep it simple. I don't want to know all the fine details. For example, my Olympics, um, the race days in between, I trusted my coach to get all the information himself and then I was like you just tell me what to do to get better because the, at that point in time that's all I wanted I just wanted a few words keep it simple not to mess up my mind with too much information however in a training day I might be asking lots and lots of questions why this why that why can't I do it this way why are you telling me to do it that way and then it's more of a discussion which over time I think he's understood why I need to know it like that but I think there's a time and a place as to two different styles, personally, and again, very dependent on each athlete. So I hope you're enjoying this celebration of coaching rather than wondering if it's all of a sudden got very complex. 
Great coaches navigate these dilemmas instinctively, but it's good sometimes to put their skills under the microscope so that we can examine them one at a time. Great coaches have this joy when their performers get it, when that light bulb goes off. They have to be a critical friend, as we heard from Gary Kirsten. They have to tap into and understand the coachee's vulnerabilities, as we heard from Charles Van Commenay, and then put those unique talents together in a bespoke way at the right time. Now we need to throw in that team dynamic and the pressure of a big match or an Olympic finals day. And that's when you really see coaching mastery at work. We've got so much incredible coaching content in our library, but I've wrapped this session up with an absolute belter of an insight that I couldn't resist adding into this particular episode. It comes from Sir Matthew Pinsent sharing a story about the legendary German rowing coach Jürgen Grobler and how he pretty much nailed all the coaching dilemmas in one hit. Imagine the tension. It's the Olympic final day in Sydney. Four Olympians in their prime that have actually worked tirelessly for four years for this career-defining race up the river. In the boat was Sir Steve Redgrave, who's about to make sport in history by winning five gold medals in a row over a 20-year period. Tensions were high between the four athletes, each with their own demons on the race morning, and in steps the master coach. What our coach was fantastic at was he might have a group session with a crew to say, this is what I think. And then just at the tail of that, he might say, let me just have a quick word with you, take you to one side and say, what about that? You know, and he'll get a little input or a, a something to you that the others don't hear. And that's, that's a very delicate balance. You can get that really badly wrong if you do. Uh, but he was world-class at it. He was world-class at it. Um, you know, I remember him taking Steve Redgrave to one side. I didn't find, I didn't know this at the time, of course, an hour and a half before the Olympic final in Sydney. Steve's fifth gold medal. So Steve is staring down the barrels of, right, now it's the moment. You know, no one has won five Olympic gold medals before consecutively. Brutal. And Jürgen went to him and said, you know, this is James's first Olympics. It's a big race for all of us, but I think it'd be really important, it'd be really nice if you just had a quick chat with James before we went out on the water. I think he's struggling a bit. So Steve then spent 20 minutes thinking, right, what do I tell him? Okay, constructed a plan, went over to James, who like all of us is kind of shivering in a corner, shaking like a leaf, and said, you know, you're the best guy for this. You've done so well. I'm totally relying on you to do this. Make sure you do this. You know, very, very simple. Brilliant, gave him a couple of minutes. Weeks later, of course, we won the race. Weeks later, Steve went up to Jürgen and said, I've just remembered that you came to me before the race and got me to go and talk to James. Like, did you really think he was struggling? And Jürgen said to him, no, James was fine. That wasn't for James, that was for you. And so he had just given Steve something to do for 20 minutes, an hour and a half before the final. You know, brilliant, absolutely brilliant bit of man management that he took Steve's mind off it for 20 minutes and actually got Steve to distill down into to tell someone else what it meant. You know, look, it's brilliant you're here. You are the right man for that job, which on the giving end is a fantastic thing to do as, as on the receiving end. 
Isn't that a beautiful story? Bear in mind that Jürgen would want that victory just as much as the athletes because he himself had a stellar record to maintain. But he kept his social detective head on, that radar was up and he devised a subtle intervention which had the perfect outcome. The fact that the athletes didn't even know he'd intervened until well after the result shows the depth of trust, the reading of their emotions and the skillful communication that he had. I really hope you found this episode as fascinating to listen to as I've found to create. I love to hear stories about how great coaches have unlocked the barriers and enabled performers to access new levels of performance. I wonder how the pandemic has affected the amount and the quality of coaching that you're doing across your sport or your business. Can we create the same kind of connection over these virtual platforms that we used to be able to do face to face? And are these sessions happening as regularly? I'd love your feedback, so please do drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com. I really hope that you've got good coaches and mentors around you during this challenging time as well. And if you need support, please come to sportingedge.com forward slash membership. Have a look at our members club and use the Inspire21 as your access code for a free month. As ever, if you've got any questions, then please do send them through for future shows to hello at sportingedge.com and I'll make sure I build a show around you. I'd love to do a Q&A show in one of the upcoming episodes. And if you do get a moment to leave a review or a rating, that would be magic as well. So thanks so much for listening, wherever you're tuning in from, on your run, on your walk, or even sliding under the duvet. Take care of yourself. We're nearly through to the end of January. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.